It's my privilege to introduce our speaker this morning. Many years ago, he noted that why would anyone want to spend their life talking about the most boring book in the world? And he was referring to this one, the Bible. But a lot has changed since then, and and now he's devoted to talking about the main message of the Bible all throughout the nation and, and throughout the world as well. And it's my privilege to also introduce a mentor in, in understanding that main message and how to communicate it. He's been a, a great help to me, and many in our church family know him well from the resources he's developed. He's written a number of books and articles, and and it's my joy to introduce my friend and brother, uh, Larry Moyer. So, Dr. Moyer, would you please come on up and share with us this morning? Well, good morning. It's an honor and delight to be back with all of you today. As some of you know, although I now live in Dallas, Texas, I was born and raised on a dairy farm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And so I always enjoy getting the farm country of Iowa. It's such a delight to be here with you. Every time I've been here, I can sincerely say that you've made me feel so warm and so welcome. I have found sometimes there are people who want to make you feel at home, but they're just not sure how to go about saying it. I may have told you before when I was here, I was speaking down in Brazil. I stayed with a family who did not know any English, but their 13-year-old girl was just learning it, and she acted as my interpreter. And she wanted to say to me, make yourself a home. But because she was just learning the English language, she chose the wrong words. And she looked at me and she said, go stay by yourself. <laughs> it's, so it's good to meet people who not only know how to make you feel home, but also know how to say it. When I left Dallas on Friday afternoon, they were forecasting a temperature in Dallas of 70 degrees. And I think so highly of your people, I thought I'd just bring some of that warm temperature up here with me. And that's why you've had such a great weekend. The sad news is I'll be taken along back. <laughs> but again, I thoroughly enjoy this opportunity to be with you. But this morning, I would like to ask and answer a question I have found. When people think in terms of God in heaven, it's one of the first questions that comes to their mind. I'd like to ask and answer the question, do you have to be good to get to heaven? And if so, how good is good enough? Do you have to be good to get to heaven? And if so, how good is good enough? And if you have your Bible, may I ask you to take them and turn with me to one of the most meaningful paragraphs in the entire Bible. It's found in the second portion of the Bible, a part called the New Testament, that small book called Philippians, chapter 3. I'd like to start reading at the fourth verse. Philippians chapter 3, I'd like to start reading at verse 4. Now, if you're here this morning and don't have a Bible with you, may I encourage you to look on someone sitting near you. Or if you have two Bibles, like a husband and wife, for example, may I encourage you to glance around you. If somebody is without a Bible, take one of yours and share with them. I want you to know where God said first, but all I'm going to do is repeat. So when you have a Bible in front of you, turn with me to Philippians, the third chapter. I'd like to begin reading at the fourth verse. Philippians chapter 3, and beginning at verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. 
But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. If you are anything at all like the average human being, then there must be times when as you talk to your friends, read the newspaper, or look at the news on the internet or the radio, you feel like driving and putting every hair from your head in distress and confusion. Because if you go those places for any kind of advice, many times you receive completely different answers. For example, let's take a subject so simple as the care of our physical bodies, and let's talk about three things. X-rays, taking vitamin C's, and eating eggs for breakfast. Now, first of all, let's talk about x-rays, because all of us know what they are. That's when they shove this machine up to your belly button to find out if there are any unidentified flying objects living inside of your stomach. The problem is the doctor then looks at you and says, I'll give you a call in two days. And so for two days, you live on the verge of a cardiac arrest. You begin to say goodbye to all your relatives and friends. You re-examine your will to make sure your mother-in-law will not profit by your passing. And you drive past the funeral, see what it looks like on the outside before they carry you on the inside. Because you are convinced, as soon as that telephone rings, it is going to spell death. Because there's only one two things he can say to you. The first thing he can say to you is, things do not look too good. We'd like you to come back in for some more tests. Now, what better way is there to say to you, you're dying? <laughs> or the second possibility is he might say to you, everything looks fine. The bill for the time you're here is $1,948.36. And you then realize, although you're going to live, you might as well commit suicide <laughs> because you can't pay for the thing anyway. But now here's the thing. There are some people so sold on x-rays they are convinced you ought to have one every year and have a yearly checkup. Then some time ago, some doctors in Time magazine said they are convinced that x-rays on a regular basis are not good for you. And I even recommending a yearly checkup. So on the one hand, one person says, if you don't have x-rays, you might die. A second person says, if you have x-rays, you might die from them. So who in the world do you believe? Or take the subject of taking vitamin C's. There are some people so sold on a vitamin C, they are convinced you ought to have a couple every day as supplement to your diet. A vitamin a day keeps the doctor away. Then again, some people in the medical field reported some time ago in a national magazine. They are even beginning to wonder whether vitamin C's may not be a contributing cause of cancer. Now, can you imagine a poor soul who gets up in the morning and to bite some friends, he pops two vitamin C's into his mouth. Then he goes to his work, and before getting about his business, he picks up a magazine and informs him that two vitamins he had just taken may be a contributing cause of cancer. And so he tries to cough up the two he just swallowed. 
Or take the subject of eating eggs for breakfast. Some time ago, I read a report that said it's quite certain. Eggs and dairy products do not contribute to a buildup of cholesterol in your system. Right after that, Time Magazine came out with a front page article that said, The results are conclusive. Eggs and dairy products are dangerous to your health. And it soon gets to the point, as a person said to me some time ago, I know there's something I'm doing that's going to kill me. I just can't figure out what it is. But I assure you, the confusion that is there in the physical realm is also there in the spiritual. Take the simple question. Do you have to be good to get to heaven? And if so, how good is good enough? There are, first of all, those who say, well, of course you have to be good to get to heaven. How do you expect to get to heaven if you haven't lived a good life on earth? Then there are those who say, well, you got to be good, but you have to be religiously good. You can live as good as you want to live. But if you have not darkened the doors of a church, you are not going to darken the gates of heaven. Then there are those that say, even that's not enough. You not only have to be good, you not only have to be religiously good, you even have to be baptized. But if you have not been under the water, you're not going to go above the clouds. So who in the world do you believe? Do you have to be good to get to heaven? And if so, how good is good enough? Well, frankly, if there's one thing you got to do, is talk to somebody who knows. It does no good to talk to somebody who does not know. I love the story of the boy who said to his dad, Dad, how far away are the stars? The father said, Son, I don't know. And the boy said, Well, Dad, how many stars are there? The father said, Son, I cannot help you there either. The boy said, Well, Dad, how far away is the moon? The dad said, I don't know. And the boy said, Well, Dad, which one's the furthest way, the moon or the stars? The father said, I have no idea. All of a sudden, the boy said, Dad, I hope you don't mind me asking so many questions. The father said, Lance, no, you don't learn anything if you don't ask. <laughs> but if there's one thing you got to do, it talk to somebody who knows. It does no good to talk to somebody who doesn't know. And that's why I have to listen to Paul the Apostle, the one God used to write this tiny book called Philippians. Because God told him how to get to heaven and then told him to go and tell everybody else. So he talks as a person who knows. But there is another advantage in listening to Paul the Apostle. And that is, if you do have to be good to get to heaven, then when the saints go marching in, Paul is going to be heading up the parade. Look in your Bible, verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Now, what I mean by that is, if there's anyone that has a right to trust in what he has done to make him acceptable to God, I do more than anybody else. And he then explains what he means by that. He points to two things, his background and his behavior. If you'll know, he starts by telling about his background. Look at verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Now look, let's face it, okay? Every single one of us have times when we are tempted to be conceited, and preachers are no exception. Even preachers have time when they are tempted up in the morning, stand in front of a mirror and sing, How Great Thou Art. <laughs> but I assure you, if there is one preacher who had a right to be conceited, 
It was Paul the Apostle. Look at the kinds of things he says. In verse 5 he says, circumcised the eighth day. In other words, he had the official sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. Only a person born a Jew could be circumcised the eighth day. Then he says in verse 5, of the stock of Israel. In other words, he was a member of the chosen race. The race God began his program with, and the race he's going to end it with. Then in verse 5 he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Of all the tribes of the Old Testament, it was a tribe of Benjamin that was referred to as beloved of the Lord. Then in verse 5 he says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What I mean by it is, there is no intermarriage in the family. His father and mother were Jews. His grandfather and grandmother were Jews. His great-grandfather and great-grandmother were Jews. His great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother were Jews. His great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother were Jews. His great-great-great-grandfather and his great-great-grandmother were Jews. His great-great, you get the point? <laughs> there was nothing but Jewish blood in the family. Then in verse 5 he says, uh, concerning the law of Pharisee. If you walked up to anyone who knew anything and said, what group of people are most determined to do what the Bible says? Anyone you put into would have said, the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. He even studied under Gamaliel, one of the most distinguished Pharisees of his day. But I have reason to think you might be saying, but no, Larry, just told everything. Why don't you say verse 5 the way an American would say it? That's just the point. There is no American has going for him what Paul the Apostle had going for him. First of all, there is most likely no Jewish blood in your family. And secondly, regardless of what your background has been like, alongside of Paul, you look like a first-class outcast. But I assure you, if you think you're bad off compared to him when it comes to background, you are even worse off when it comes to behavior. His behavior towers above yours the way the tallest building in New York City would tower above your house. Look at what he says in verse 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now notice he says two things. First of all, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. And you're saying, but Larry, for crying out loud, how can anyone call persecuting the church good behavior? I don't particularly like the place, but I wouldn't persecute him. Because the Christians that they knew, you did not have to keep the law to get to heaven. To the Pharisees, that was the same as cursing God. So when they chose one man to exterminate all Christians, they chose Paul the Apostle. Because he was more faithful than a host of ten men. Then in verse 6 he says, Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blame this. If you'd have walked up to anyone who knew Paul and asked them, in what area is he not doing what the Bible says? They would not have been able to point to one flaw, one fault in his life. Now, come on, be honest with me. Suppose I walked up to somebody who knew you, and I said, what flaws or faults does he have? What would they say? You know what would happen. <laughs> Someone would start cursing him. <laughs> Someone would say, let me tell you about his good points. It only take me five minutes. <laughs> when it comes to Paul the Apostle, they would not be able to point to one flaw, one fault he had. Now, all those difficulties, say verse 5, the way one American would say that, 
It's not difficult to say verse 6. The way one of us would say that. If your behavior compares to his, then you can say, I'm in church every Sunday. I pray every night. I read the Bible every day. I put my mate before myself. I love my enemy. I do good to the person who hates me. In other words, if there is one person who was a fanatic in doing everything God said, it was Paul the Apostle. When it came to following him, he was a fanatic. I love the story of the minister that walked in the restaurant and he sat down alongside of a truck driver. And the truck driver said to him, what do you do? And the minister said, well, I'm a minister. And the truck driver said, are you really? Where's your church? And the minister said, well, someone right up here in the corner. And the truck driver said, you got to be kidding. That's where my wife and I go. The minister said, that's something. I've been there for five years. I've never seen you. And the truck driver said, oh, now, come on. I didn't say I was a fanatic. <laughs> but I assure you, if there's one person who was a fanatic, knowing everything God said, it was Paul the Apostle. When it came to following him, he was a fanatic. Now, with all that, right out there on the table, where all of us can see it, look with me at the shocking words of verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 said, But what things were gained to me, these I count lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I count all things lost. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish means, are you ready? Garbage, dung, manure. Now, please don't understand. Paul the Apostle is not saying, being a Pharisee was rubbish. Being of the tribe of Benjamin was garbage. And he is not telling you, going to church is garbage. Loving a good life is rubbish. Loving your neighbor is garbage. That is so commendable of you. What he is saying is, he came to realize that those things would not make him acceptable to God. Instead, if he was going to come to Christ, what he refers to in verse 9 as the excess of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, he had to count those things as rubbish. And what the Bible is saying is, when it comes to getting you to heaven, anything you have done is as worthless as garbage, dung, manure. Some of you may remember reading years ago about the double eagle the second. The hot air balloon that made its way all across the ocean to Europe. At one point, it started to sink to a very dangerous altitude. And therefore, to lighten the load, they had to take some things and throw them overboard. And so they took some extra food after clothing. They threw it overboard. 
They took some radios they used to communicate. They threw them overboard. In other words, the things that were considered gain had to be considered loss or they would have never made it to Europe. If you are sitting here today and you're depending on your good life to get you to heaven, you're going to have to take it to the overboard and recognize it will not save you. Otherwise, you will not get to heaven. If you're sitting here today and you're depending on your church attendance to save you, you're going to have to take it to the overboard and recognize it will not save you. Otherwise, you will not get to heaven. If you're sitting here today and you're depending on your baptism to save you, you're going to have to take it to the overboard and recognize it will not save you. Otherwise, you will not get to heaven. If you're sitting here today and you're depending on the commandments you kept, the sacraments you've taken to get you to heaven, you're going to have to take that overboard and recognize it will not save you. Otherwise, you will not get to heaven. When it comes to getting you to heaven, anything you have done is as worthless as garbage, dung, manure. It's rubbish. He said, but then Larry, why will my goodness and good works not get me to heaven? And Paul tells you in verse 9, because notice what it says, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God through faith. In other words, you do have to be righteous to get to heaven. But your righteousness is not enough. You must be as perfect as Jesus. But since you cannot be that perfect, God is willing to give you his son's perfection, his righteousness as a free gift when you place your trust in Christ alone to save you. Christ died for you on a cross. He took the punishment for all the wrongs you've done. He rose again the third day. When you come as a sinner and put your trust in Christ alone, nothing else, had your only way to heaven. God gives you his son's perfection as a free gift. And when God looks upon you, he no longer sees your sin. He sees the perfection of his son Christ. And at that second, you are forever accepted by God. Not based on what you had done for him, but based on what he did for you on a cross. And that's why verse 9 says, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Some time ago, there was a man who had an eye difficulty. He went to the doctor. The doctor suggested he go to see an eye surgeon. But he said to him, I think he's going to recommend a very expensive operation. Man decided if he had to use all of his life savings correct his eye problem, he'd do it. So he made the appointment he went. The surgeon confirmed the fact he did need an expensive operation. He told him how much it was. And the man said, well, in that case, I'll have to go blind. I could not borrow enough to pay you. And the surgeon said, you cannot come up to my standards. I will not come down to yours. But I can provide the operation free of charge. 
and that I am willing to do. What the Bible is saying is you cannot come up to God's standards. You cannot be as perfect as he is. He will not come down to yours. But he can provide his son's righteousness as a free gift. When you place your trust in Christ alone as your only way to heaven. Christ died in a cross. He paid for all the wrongs you've done. He rose again the third day. When you place your trust in Christ alone, not Christ plus, but Christ period. God gives you his son's righteousness as a free gift. And when God looks upon you, he no longer sees your sin. He says it's a perfection of his son Christ. And you are forever accepted by God. Not based on what you have done for him. But based on what he did for you on a cross. And that's again why verse 9 says, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but that which is by God through faith in Christ. When it comes to getting you to heaven, anything you have done is as worthless as garbage dung manure. When it comes to getting to heaven, having gone to church is rubbish. When it comes to getting to heaven, having been baptized is rubbish. When it comes to getting to heaven, having lived a good life is rubbish. When it comes to getting to heaven, having kept the commandments is rubbish. When it comes to getting you to heaven, anything you have done is as worthless as rubbish. Do you have to be good to get to heaven? If so, how good is good enough? Seven words say it all. Trust in Christ alone to save you. I realize a message like this can be good news to some and bad news to others. It can be good news to some because you may have always thought that in order to get to heaven, you've got to be religious. And religion may mean as much to you as it did to men who said, the only thing I ever got out of church was the 50 cents I put in the offering plate and the dollar and a half I took out. <laughs> All of a sudden, of course, you know, you have to be religious to get to heaven. But it could be bad news to others of us. Because having lived right and done right and been right, it's difficult to lay all that aside and recognize it will not get you to heaven. But bear in mind, Paul the Apostle had the same attitude we were tempted to have. One time there were two churches thinking about merging. The problem was they were from two different denominations. All of a sudden, one man said, now look, the most important thing is that we are Christians. Another man spoke up, he said, now just hold everything. My dad was a member of the church. His 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 dad was a member of the church. And his dad was a member of the church. And nobody's going to make a Christian out of me now. Now, we smile, but sometimes what we're saying is, I've lived right, I've done right, I've been right. Nobody's going to make a Christian out of me now. But bear in mind, Paul the Apostle had the same attitude again that we're tempted to have. Look again at verse 7. What things were gained to me, those I kind of lost for Christ. And if Paul could do it, so can you. 
Again, do you have to be good to get to heaven? How good is good enough? Seven words say it all. Trust in Christ alone to save you. Years ago, there was a woman by the name of Charter Elliott. Although she grew up in what we would call a God-fearing kind of home, she never seemed to completely understand what you had to do to get to heaven. And one day, there was an elderly minister visiting with her. All of a sudden, he said to her, Charter, when are you going to come to Christ? And she was really taken back by how abruptly he asked the question. And she said, well, uh, I, I don't think I know how. He said, Charlotte, you don't know how. Just come as you are. Those words kept going over and over in her mind. Come as you are, come as you are, come as you are, come as you are. And she went to her room that night. All of a sudden, it hit her. You come to Christ as you are. And she knelt down by her bed. And she trusted Christ and Christ alone as her only way to heaven. Then she got up on her feet and she took a pen and a piece of paper in her hands and she wrote the words of song that's known across the world. Wherever I have been, they are singing the song. Because our first few lines of that song go, Just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. That's how you come to Christ. Just as you are without one plea. By that your blood was shed for me. Because when it comes to getting to heaven, anything you have done is as worthless as rubbish. Now I admit, I would not have made that simple. I would not provide it that free. But then I don't love you the way God does. And because of how he loves us, he makes it simple, provides it free. And that's why it's called Amazing Grace. Let's bow our heads, even our hearts in prayer. And this morning, while our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I'd like to ask every person here, most important question a friend could ask. I hope I call myself your friend. If you were to die right now, do you know, beyond any doubt, you go straight to heaven? I am sure there are those who say, Larry, I don't think I've ever understood this before. Nobody's explained it quite the way you did today. You know what's exciting? I mean exciting. You could trust Christ right there right now. Right there where you are, Jesus Christ could become your personal Savior. In a moment, I'm going to say a prayer. Kind of prayer you can use. If right now you want to tell God you're trusting Christ. Now saying this prayer does not save. It's trusting Christ that saves. Prayer is only how you tell God what you're doing. But right now you want to trust Christ. This is how you can tell God that. Just in the quietness of your seat. The privacy of your heart. Dear God, I come to you now. And I admit to you that I'm a sinner. Could I tell God that? I admit I'm a sinner. Nothing I ever do makes me acceptable to God. Tell God that. Nothing I ever do makes me acceptable to God. By now understand, Christ died for me. Tell God that. 
He took my place in punishment and rose again the third day. Tell God that. And right now God is sitting in this seat today. I place my trust in Christ alone. As my only way to heaven. Thank you for the free gift of eternal life. I just right now received. Now as heads are bowed, eyes are closed, may I say two things. If you sat there and sincerely trusted Christ, the Bible says, not me. God just gave you free the gift of eternal life. Everything from this point on is a thank you to God for what he just did today. May I encourage you, live the rest of your life as a thank you letter to God. Then week by week and month by month, take out your life which should not be there and what should be there. And secondly, don't be embarrassed to tell anybody, I trust the Christ today as my personal Savior. When Christ died on the cross, he was not ashamed of you. Don't be ashamed to anybody. I trust the Christ today as my personal Savior. Live the rest of your lives and thank you to God. And don't be ashamed to anybody. I trust the Christ today as my personal Savior. He was not ashamed of you. I beg you, don't be ashamed of him. Our gracious Father, thank you. Thank you a zillion times for not consulting us when you planned the way from where we are to where you are. Because we would have made it so complicated and difficult. But you loving the way we never thought of loving, made it so simple, whoever wants to can come. Lord, we pray for those who trust you, may they not be ashamed to say so. Could the rest of our life be a thank you to you. And Lord, for those of us who have known you for years, everything we say, everything we do, everything we think, may it simply be a response to amazing grace. For we ask in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen.